0: Welcome from Santa Clara, California, this is Earl Schaefer on episode number two of this podcast series. Together with my guests, we will be talking about how you can start, build and scale a successful business. We'll also uncover some of the hidden stories of successful startups from the San Francisco Bay Area as told by entrepreneurs, investors, innovators and more. Today's guest is Rick Rasmussen, who, after a successful career in the tech industry, now teaches entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley and Northeastern University. He started his career at Fairchild Semiconductor, one of the first companies to use silicone in its transistors at a time when germanium was still the golden standard. He went on to spend a decade at LSI Logic before he joined C-Cube, where he was taken on a wild ride, taking the company from near bankruptcy to Fortune 500 status. After his career in business, Rick focused solely on teaching entrepreneurship. He was also heavily involved in shaping the Austrian Go Silicon Valley program, the first startup acceleration program of its time. If you want to learn more about how you can be part of the Go Silicon Valley program, shoot us an email at sanfrancisco@advantageaustria.org. At Rick and I are going to talk about customer discovery today, the first step of the customer development process. We will chat about what it is, why it's so important, and where you can start if you want to build a successful product. Rick, thank you for being here today and joining me on this podcast episode. Thanks for having me. You spent almost a decade of your career at LSI Logic, where you were the product director and later on became the general manager of the company. But it was right after that that you joined C-Cube, a struggling company at the time, which turned out to be one of your wildest rides of your career. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you joined C-Cube?
1: I was being recruited in to be VP of marketing. Uh, I would basically be the number three person, four person at the company, depending on how you counted. And we had raised twenty eight million dollars. They had ran through it and we getting ready to go under.
0: That is a lot of money to burn through. So how were you guys able to turn it around?
1: So, part of a rescue operation, the CEO was responsible for raising venture money. We actually raised uh, a total of ten million from Sequoia Capital. Don Valentine became our chairman of the board, and then I did two deals with TI and AMD, and we licensed them our technology. Uh, and so we turned around and rescued the company and took that ten million. Eventually spun it up to um, make the company profitable, went through an IPO and became a Fortune 500 company.
0: That's impressive. And actually went and did some digging. And just to give the listeners a little bit of a time frame, all of this happened over the course of about four, four and a half years between 1992 and 1996. So that brings up one big question for me, though. What in the world were you guys selling for this turnaround to be possible?
1: It was digital video. turns out back in the day, all video was analog. So it was difficult to record, difficult to transmit, um, clunky analog technology. So to make video digital, it creates huge data sets because you can imagine every single pixel on a screen in color flashing at you 30 times a second creates a large data set back in the day that was really almost impossible to go ahead and and uh, store or transmit without compression. So we were basically driving compression standards, and we were the first one to put those into chips. And I got to tell the world about you know, DVDs. I got to tell the world about digital broadcast satellite and digital cable and everything else that we take for granted today. That was pretty cool.
0: I can't imagine how that would feel like to actually be responsible or play such a big role in bringing in technology to consumers. So, yeah, that that is pretty cool. What ended up happening with the company C Cube?
1: Oh, so it would, uh, again, with Fortune 500 status, it was doing pretty well. I left in 96. Um, the company stock price continued to do very well. The revenues had peaked out of, at between four hundred and six hundred million. and 600 million. Um, And eventually, the company right during the dot-com peak was sold back to LSI Logic.
0: Which closes the circle for you because that is exactly the company that you spent 10 years at and initially came from when you joined C-Cube. All right. So you've had a lot of experience in product management, product marketing. I want to dive deep into customer discovery today. When did you first hear about the term customer discovery?
1: Well, the first place I ever saw the term customer discovery was from a book by Steve Blank called The Four Steps of the Epiphany. And he's followed up with another book that's uh, basically a second edition called The Startup Owner's Manual. And these are sort of the Bibles of the lean startup movement and how you would get a company started from a an actual methodology pedantic methodology standpoint
0: and so the first step in the four steps to the epiphany is customer discovery can you help me understand a little bit better what it actually means and why it's important
1: Customer discovery came about, it's a term that was invented because back in the day, a lot of companies would take their own expertise, come up with a product or service that they believed their customers would want, build that product or service, launch it, train their sales force, spend a lot of money, and then put it in the marketplace and the product for whatever reason would fail or certainly not meet expectations. And, you know, it's all interesting, well and good that you and your product marketing people and your engineers, and your management are coming up with things that you believe customers want. But why not actually talk to customers first? Why not discover what it is that they need, what problems they're trying to solve, what solutions you might be able to build around those problems? And by doing so, you cut out a lot of the uncertainty and the expense of building a product erroneously.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, it also begs the question, what were companies doing before customer discovery was a methodology? How did you get to the point where you actually had a successful product? Literally,
1: it was just uh, our engineers who would come up with something they thought was interesting. They'd run it by me if I thought it was interesting. And, you know, based on my secondhand discussion with customers, then we'd go ahead and allocate a budget and build it and actually go through that process of launching. And it happened time and time and time again. Now, we thought we were talking to customers. We were talking to one or two. We were lining up beta sites. We were showing them our specs early on. We were getting a little bit of feedback. But... One or two does not make a market. And so this whole idea of customer discovery was broadening the the base to speak with more and more customers to the point where you got some sense of commonality so you can go off and build something that made sense for a a larger market rather than just your one or two favorites.
0: You've built a lot of products that did make sense for the larger market, though. How were you able to build those products with the process that you followed back then? And what was your success rate?
1: Back in the day, once our engineers uh, came up with a product and, you know, I agreed to go ahead and authorize it, put together a product plan, send it to management, it would get approved. We were spending a million dollars a piece on each one of these products and we were betting that the market would be accepting. It turns out, you know, for each one of those bets, we were right about 50% of the time and 50% of the time was an amazing result. Uh, In that day, it was really difficult to go ahead and find something that would catch. And so you'd be willing to spend a few million dollars to go ahead and find something that would hit the marketplace and and go running. Our success rate, again, was 50%. And so at that level, we considered to be outrageously successful. I was promoted multiple times and was able to run divisions uh, and spending a lot more money than just a million dollars at a time. That's unacceptable now. It's unacceptable to be able to go ahead and spend a million dollars when you don't necessarily know what the chances of success are. And so that's the point of customer discovery. You want to be able to get in front of a customer, to identify their problems, to talk to multiple customers across the board so that you can come up with a potentially optimal solution and to build that solution, put it again in front of customers so you can ask them whether that solution meets their needs and only then go off and build it. So this ability To do customer discovery allows you to iterate quickly, to make changes, to do pivots on what it is that you think your customers want. They'll give you that feedback. It's really increased the efficiency and reduced the costs of developing new products or services in the marketplace.
0: Customer discovery isn't a one and done though, right? It is something that you keep coming back to. It is iterative, so to say, every time you introduce a new product feature, right?
1: These experiments, first off, they're run at each individual stage of the customer discovery process, initially trying to find a problem that's worth solving and trying to find the ideal customer that has those problems and things along those lines. It's uh, customer problems. Then, you know, per your question, which is, do you iterate? Yes. Once you come up with something that you believe is a problem that we're sol- that's worth solving, You then come up with a solution, you build out some prototypes, you put those like an experiment, you put those in customers' hands, you get their reaction, uh, and make refinements, improvements on the solution. So it happens over and over again. You hypothesize on problem, figure it out. You hypothesize on solution, figure it out. And then the next stage is further down the line, which are trying to find of the right way to sell, your marketing messages, your advertising vehicles, your pricing strategy. All those are also framed as a series of experiments and you're getting customer feedback in order to tell whether you're doing things the right way or not.
0: A lot of times companies have a great technology and they're looking for a market. They're actually looking to figure out what industry, what niche to go into. How does customer discovery compare to finding a product market fit then?
1: So customer discovery is actually the step before product market fit. So it's called problem solution fit. So the four steps of the epiphany start off with problem solution fit, which which really uh, customer discovery is your primary thing. The next step is product market fit. You have a product that you've decided is worth building. Your customers have validated that and so on. And then
0: you're trying to figure out the best way to take that product and bring it to market. I would assume then that this process looks different for B2B and B2C companies. Can you share a little bit about the differences in both sectors?
1: Oh, for B2B versus B2C, absolutely. So uh, a couple ways. So first off, let's let's break them down in terms of the characteristics of those two categories. Uh, B2C, business to consumer. So you're selling things to a, a variety of consumers you come up with something called a persona, your your belief of who would be your ideal customer or set of ideal customers. So if you're selling to a mother with newborn children, it's different than selling to a guy that's buying garden equipment or somebody that's buying an SUV. So you build a profile of your ideal customer and then you go out and you try to find those customers and interview them as appropriate. Typically in a consumer market, you're selling something to a much broader audience, hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands of people. But in a consumer world, they're a little easier to access. You can find a population to go ahead and interview and continue to interview them until you see some consistent responses for the type of problems that they have and the type of solutions that they may wanna build. The second category is business to business. So you're not going to have typically hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of customers. You might have a population. So if you're selling a part to automotive manufacturers, maybe there's a hundred companies in the world overall that are building cars. And so you would want to be able to go ahead and find the appropriate product manager that has that problem or might want to be the person that buys your solution, something along those lines. And then you can interview them and get direct feedback. So first off, it is a set of interviews that are done to a much smaller audience. They're more more difficult to find um, the the right people within a corporation, often called the decision-making unit. And they're going to have much more in-depth and or technical expertise than your typical consumer, your consumer-facing product will. So you develop a methodology that's appropriate for the type of customer that you're targeting.
0: Where do I find these problems, though, that customers are facing? Where do I go? I'm basically looking to find problems somewhere that people might have. But what is my first step? Where are these people?
1: The easiest thing to do is to put yourselves in in their shoes and to say, if they have the same problem, how would they find out about that problem? How would they go about solving it? They might do a web search. you looking at that specific type of problem. They would go on the web, do some research. They may look at some blogs. They may take a look at social media, Facebook groups, or things along those lines. You may go on to Reddit or Quora. You then insert yourself in the middle of that chain. You try to get onto Quora. You try to be a user in a group or something along those lines. Typically, in these forums, what you want to find are the people that are dissatisfied that are complaining that have some sort of an issue and then you can either you know reach out to them on a forum or contact them directly or you know things along those lines so you you dig deep and you try to find the target audience that would really allow you to understand the specific issues at hand
0: that makes a lot of sense because come to think about it A lot of times it is the people that are dissatisfied that will go online and, for example, write a review why they didn't like something, right? They tend to
1: be a lot more vocal. I mean, in fact, product reviews are a really good one as well. So you can go on to Amazon or eBay and and try to find people that they are in that product category and are ranking things as one star. Those are prime target audiences because they're dissatisfied with the way that things are being done now.
0: I think what's really important there is to note that a lot of times you don't have to invent a completely new product or a completely new gadget. A lot of times it's just a small iteration of making something that's already there better.
1: Exactly. So the initial company, your competitor came up with a product or service that didn't meet the customer's needs. So they're lacking in some way, shape, or form. There's an unmet need, and you get to go ahead and fill that need and try to do so quickly so you can get in the market before anybody can catch up with you.
0: Okay, so for B2C companies, it's fairly straightforward. You go online, you look for forums, you look on Reddit, on Quora, with the added benefit that you can also present yourself as an expert and actually build your brand as well but B2B is different how can you get in touch with them and why would they be inclined to actually talk to you
1: yeah again it's a question of building trust so if you're just somebody who who shows up and starts hammering somebody with questions they'll go well, who is this person why are they talking to me should I trust them or not the the usual reaction is to be defensive so if you if your introduction is put in a way that has them opening up so much the better Uh, some ways to meet a brand new person. And I'm talking mostly about B2B right now with a smaller space would be a warm introduction. Somebody who's a mutual acquaintance that introduces you to them. Um, The second thing would be to, to speak about your intent. So if you're a student, they clearly know your intent. You're working on a class. If you're part of a startup, identify what's kind of a startup you're working on and what things you're looking at and you know try to build that that trust with them overall. But without that warm opening of some sort, uh, your chances of actually getting any really good information are, are, are far is far less.
0: What I've encountered before, and that's especially from entrepreneurs in <clears throat> what I've encountered before, especially from entrepreneurs from Europe is the fact that they're asking for an introduction, but they're not really willing to talk about what their idea is or what their product is because they're scared that somebody is going to steal it. How would you address that? Is that a cultural thing or is that a, you know, product development issue? That's
1: a cultural thing. You know, it's certainly true in sort more conservative cultures, or, but, you know, there are a million ideas around. You think Uber was the first one to come up with ride sharing? No, Um, there are a lot of people before that. It's all really about execution at the end of the day. So getting something right and then executing on it properly. People don't steal ideas. If somebody were to walk up to you and talk about ride sharing, would you run off and steal it? Probably not. So it's time to market and it's getting the actual product or service right. And that's what customer discovery is all about.
0: That reminds me, That actually reminds me of a quote I recently read in The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, where Peter Drucker, the famous Austro-American management consultant, says, There is surely nothing quite so useless as doing with great efficiency what should not be done at all. And I think that's kind of at the heart of customer discovery.
1: Execution is everything. Just march and move forward as quickly as possible. And again, the methodologies that we're talking about here, customer discovery and customer validation, which is the product market fit, are ways to do this expeditiously and get a get a strong result in the quickest way possible.
0: So customer discovery really is a shortcut to finding what makes the customer's problem a problem and how, what I can do to solve it. What are the essential ingredients for me to solve that problem? So... With that being said, how does that look like in practice? How do I do customer discovery? Where do I start? Uh, first off,
1: what's the point of talking to customers? Well, it's understand them better. Understand what their problems are, what the their issues are. What is a day in the life of uh, one of your customers? What do they do when they get up? How? What sort of issues do they have? What sort of scenarios would point them towards potentially using your product or service. It's not about you and your opinions. It's about them and their situation. So no pitching. You ask questions to to do that. Second is uh, everything is about the past and the present. So you ask about their current situation and what is happening or what did they do today, day in the life, and, and how did they react to the situations that were put in front of them? understanding what has been going on or currently is going on is really important so you never ask future questions you never ask would you or will you do something because they'll give you a prediction and those predictions are basically useless so a prediction about would you buy if i had this feature would you buy this product of course you're going to say yes because you're there and They're trying to be friendly or would you spend an extra dollar? Yes, they would because you're there. But all these things in the future are something you'll deal with later when you have a possible solution. But you're trying to understand problems early on.
0: So those are kind of the ground rules of what to follow. How do the questions look like in real life then? Is there a script that I follow? Is there some questions that are better than others?
1: When doing customer discovery it's often best to have a script that you follow. And the script is intended to be an open-ended series of questions that elicit response from the the interviewee so that you'll find out exactly what what problems they have around the subject matter, how they solve it today, and so on. So let me give you a quick idea of what a typical script might look like. First off, you would ask, tell me a story about the last time blank. Or tell me a story about when you had this situation around blank. Uh, So it leads them to recant the last time that they actually had that situation occur to them.
0: Sorry to interrupt here, but I think it's really important to combine this with an actual example so the listeners can actually hear what the questions will look like for a certain product. So let's go with an application that helps people focus. What would the question look like?
1: So our subject would be, tell me a story about the last time that you had uh, lost your focus or tell me a little about the last time that your mind wandered or how how's your focus today? or you know some sort of a leading question that allows them to open up and you just simply you try to state it as natural as you can to get some response. Second one was after they tell you a story, what was the hardest thing about trying to focus? Or why was that hard? What was the hardest thing? Oh, I couldn't focus because were, you know, everybody was running around outside. I couldn't focus because there was too much noise. I couldn't focus because I was distracted with too many things. You can, I, you can sort of peel that situation open and ask them to elaborate. And why was that hard? Why was it hard to focus? And, and that's a little awkward maybe, but again, you're trying to get them to break open that situation in as much detail as possible. And when they say, why was that hard? Well, I was, I was hyped up on sugar or, well, I really needed some quiet time. If They say, I really needed some quiet time. Well, then maybe that's your app is something that provides them quiet time, something that provides them the ability to meditate. And that prompts you to actually think about your marketing messages. So if they need quiet time, hi, need quiet time, use our app would be a way to do that full circle. Next next set of questions would, how do you solve it now? You know, if you need to be able to relax, if you're amped up, if you need to be able to focus, how do you solve it now? Well, I, I try to get into a quiet room or, well, I have another meditation app. Oh, okay. Well, why is that not awesome? Why does not that not work for you? Or how could it be better? And you parse open the alternate solutions about how they solve it now and try to see if you're proposed solution might be better. Notice you haven't talked about your proposed solution at all. You're trying to elicit their open-ended situational feedback. So then once you cycle through this, tell me a story. Why was it the hardest? Why was that hard? How do you solve it now? Why wasn't it awesome? You get extra bonus points for eliciting emotions. So if they're happy or they're frustrated or they're angry or, you know, just exhibit some emotions about the situation, that's great. You're getting their raw emotion. You're you're getting right to the core of what their issues are and how you can potentially solve it. Um, you go through this script once, tell me a story about why was it hardest. But if you can do that three times, tell me another story about the last time that you couldn't focus. Tell me the last time tell me a story about the last time you needed to focus and couldn't. Um, and then if doing it three times, you'll get different answers each and every time.
0: So at that point it's like peeling an onion and you're just going deeper and deeper on the problem.
1: Yeah, because you know the first time they might give you a surface level answer, but having to think about it the second or a third time you know can really give you you know some deeper insights. And then all the way through, there's this thing called the five whys. Why was that hard? Why? Well, what was the hardest thing. Anytime you can ask why, why was that the case? Why did that not work for you? Ask why, why, why? And if you get through five whys during your interview cycle, you will get even more insight than you would otherwise. So those are some basic rules. And again, credit to Justin Wilcox, who actually came up with this basic script. But it's something that I teach and and my students follow all the time.
0: Rick, I think our time for this podcast is up. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into customer discovery and being on the podcast with me. All
1: right. Earl. Thanks so much for having me. And to all our listeners, go out and talk to your customers. They're invaluable sources of information and you won't have a business without them. Go get them.
0: And that's a wrap for our second podcast episode. If you want to get in touch with Rick or myself, you can find us on LinkedIn, Rick Rasmussen or Johannes Earl Schaefer. And if you want to learn more about the Go Silicon Valley initiative, where you can learn from the best in the valley on how to scale and build your business and how to ultimately enter the U.S. market, send me an email at sanfrancisco at org. Thank you for listening and until next time.